Hello, my name is Cory, and welcome back to the Mongol Empire podcast. Much to my own surprise, we are here and on schedule. We are still in November, and that's all that counts. This, of course, is the second part of the multi-part mini-series of the Rise of Temujin. And if you haven't listened to the first part, I would recommend doing so, as it provides much of the background information to this and future episodes, which will be coming out in the following months if everything goes to plan. So, in the previous episode, we looked at the ancestry and birth of Chinggis Khan, known at this point in history as Temujin, and we finished with the abandonment of Temujin's family by the leaders of the Taijigud clan after the death of Temujin's father, Yesugai. So we pick up today from where we left off last time, and that is with the abandonment of the family. Now, as we noted in the previous episode, the Taichigud clan were distant relatives of Temujin. The actions of Targutai Kiraltug and Todajin Gert, the leaders of the clan, plunged the family into abject poverty. They had few followers now, and struggled to obtain enough food. However, they did survive, and it was thanks largely to the immediate actions of Temujin's mother, Hogalun. And it's notable, actually, that women play a remarkably important role in Mongol history, and often are some of the most influential people in the empire. In addition to being caregivers, many women shared roles that men typically performed. They were teachers and advisors, they had the skills for hunting, gathering, and had equestrianism, Essentially, a Mongol woman had the same skill set as a Mongol man. So despite the loss of the Kiat and Taichigud people, Hogalun was in a very good position to survive out on the steppe. And a secret history backs this up, saying, quote, After the Taichigud brothers had abandoned the old camp, leaving only Hogalun Ujin, her sons, and her little ones, after the Taichigud had taken all of the people away, leaving only the mothers and sons. Hogalun Ujin, a woman born with great power, took care of her sons. Proudly, she put on her headdress and gathered the folds of her skirt. She went up and down the banks of the Onan and gathered pears and wild fruit. End quote. Her efforts to keep the family alive included digging up roots and wild onions and giving her children the skills to make hooks, nets, bows and arrows with which to get meat. What is remarkable is that she was able to find enough food to keep all five of her children alive. The secret history notes the debt that the descendants of Temujin had to Hogalun. The passage I've just quoted goes on to shower her with praise, and celebrates the fact that her actions made sure that her sons would rise to unify the tribes and give the people law and order. It also praises the fact that despite the hardships, her children all grew up to become fine people. As the secret history was originally an oral history, the listener is left in no doubt that Hogalun is one of the heroes of the story. Saying all that, Hogalun wasn't doing this entirely on her own. Yesugai had had at least one other wife, possibly named Kogachin, and she was with the family. Kogachin had two sons herself, named Begta and Belgutai. They were similar in age to Temujin and Kassar. 
But as all four boys hit their teenagers, an irreparable divide began to grow between them, and it forced Hogalon to take on the role of advisor and peacekeeper. The secret history notes that Begter and Belgatai would take many of the animals caught by Temujin and Kassar, and withhold the food from the rest of the family. The relationship between the two sets of brothers completely broke down after a fish was taken. Temujin was livid, and he went to Hogalun to complain about the injustice. Her response, though, was less than sympathetic. Quote, Stop this! How can brothers act this way with each other? Now, when we've no one to fight beside us but our own shadows, when there's nothing to whip our horses but their own tails, how will we get our revenge on the Taiichi good brothers? Why do you fight amongst yourselves like the five sons of Mother Alan? Don't be this way. End quote. It really sounds like the response of someone who has grown tired of the constant bickering of her children. The problem was, though, Hogalun hadn't dealt with Temujin's legitimate grievances. I mean, what value does a story about a near-mythical person and her children have when you feel, whether rightly or wrongly, that someone is brazenly robbing you? Refusing to follow Hogalun's advice, Temujin stormed out of the tent, yelling, How can we live with them? With no satisfying resolution coming from their mother, Temujin and Kassar decided to take matters into their own hands. They picked up their bows and arrows and went hunting for Begta. They found him looking after the family's nine horses, and hiding in the grass, Temujin crept up from behind, sending Kassar in from the front. And once they were in position, they jumped up, bows drawn, arrows pointing at Begta. Seeing murder in the eyes of his two half-brothers, Begta tried to appeal to them. The secret history gives him words similar to Hogalun's. Quote, How can you do this to me, when our mouths are filled with the bitterness of what the Taiichi good clan has done? When we ask ourselves, how can we get our revenge on them? How can you treat me like some dirt in your eye, like something that's keeping the food from your mouth? How can you do this, when there's no one to fight beside us but our shadows, when there's nothing to whip our horses but their own tails? How can you kill me? End quote. The author of The Secret History is deliberately showing a stark contrast between the two boys. Temujin is a petulant child, focused entirely on the injustice of the stolen food. By offering the larger picture... Begta comes across as more mature, a leader. The food was taken because he needed to get stronger to be able to look after the family and gain revenge against the Taiichi good. And this was probably the crux of the matter. Begta was lining himself up as the leader of the family, a position that Temujin himself coveted. Seeing that there was no chance of a reprieve, Begta made one last appeal to Temujin. Quote, if you must kill me, don't destroy the fire of my hearth. Don't kill my brother Belgutai too. End quote. He then sat down in the grass and waited. I'd like to think there was some kind of dramatic pause as Temujin considered Begta's words. But in the end, he had to die. And so he did. Temujin left the body where it fell. When they returned to the tent... Hogalun immediately knew what had taken place. 
it was now her turn to become incandescent with rage. She compared her two eldest to animals who destroy without thinking about the consequences. They had allowed their petty squabble to further weaken the family when really they should be looking at the bigger picture, which, as has been mentioned a few times at this point, was to get revenge on the Taichi good. For the author of The Secret History, this whole episode is a black mark against Temujin's character. Fratricide was one of the big taboos on the set. Yes, you could kidnap women, you could kill off rivals, and you could abandon families, but if you kill your brother, then that makes you a pariah. So it's interesting that it was included as an official story of Chinggis Khan's life. It may have been put in to show that Temujin was not a perfect person, and he had had to make a number of sacrifices to ensure the prosperity of the Mongol people, perhaps the embodiment of this idea of a bigger picture. And if Temujin wasn't already fully aware of this bigger picture, the Taichi good very quickly made sure that he was. At some point after the death of Begta, Targutai Kiriltug decided that the clan should pay a visit to Hoglan and her family and kill the boys. So just to be clear, killing your brother is bad, but murdering children is fine. It's good to know. Alerted to the small force coming towards their camp, the family moved into the cover of woodland, where Belgutai, who had apparently reconciled with the rest of the family, Kassar, and presumably Temujin, made a barricade and fired off some arrows. Hogalan took the other young children, Kadigan, Temujin, Temulan, to a nearby cliff. The Taijigud announced that they only actually wanted Temujin, that the rest of the family could live, they didn't really care. But... He managed to get onto a horse and escape to another patch of woods around Mount Terjun. Targutai chased him down and trapped Temujin on the mountain, but he was in a location where he could not be reached. Temujin was now besieged. It was three days before Temujin attempted to leave his hiding place. Thinking that the Taijigud may have abandoned their pursuit, he came down the mountain, but unexpectedly, his saddle fell off. Looking at it... He noticed that the harness was still buckled. He took it as a sign to stay, and decided to retreat back to his hiding place. Clearly the gods didn't want him to leave at this point. Three more days passed, and he tried again. This time a boulder fell and blocked his path. And again, Temujin thought it was a sign that he should stay on the mountain. After three more nights without food or water, Temujin decided he had to get off the mountain. It would be better to face whatever was waiting for him than to end up starving to death. So he descended. The Taichigud, undoubtedly well provisioned, were still waiting for him and took him prisoner. Temujin was taken to the Taichigud camp where he was forced to wear a wooden kang. A kang is essentially a board with a hole in it which a person's head was put through. It was used as a punishment and a humiliation. In this scenario, it's kind of difficult to know what Temujin was being punished for. Was it for the death of Begta? Or was this whole episode completely unrelated? Just an anecdote put in by the author of the secret history to tell some of the life of Temujin. There is no real answer to this question, but it seems like it was probably part and parcel of step life, where the eldest of a potentially rival clan was reduced to servitude in the attempts to discredit him in front of potential followers. Whatever 
the reasons were for his imprisonment, Temujin probably spent his days on display in the camp, and at night he was given to a different family who were responsible for guarding him. But it turns out that a Kang could also be an effective bludgeon, and during one of the feasts held by the Taichigud, Temujin managed to overwhelm his guard and hide in a nearby river, where once again the Kang aided him by being afloat. When the guard recovered, the alarm was raised, and the Taichigud went hunting for him. Temujin's hiding place was quickly discovered, but the man who found him directed the search parties away from the area instead of turning Temujin in. As a result, the first search was unsuccessful, Everyone reconvened at the camp, having not found Temujin, and a second search was immediately undertaken. This time the man, named Sorkan Shira, ran interference so that this search was also a failure. And when a third one was proposed, Sorkan Shira spoke up again, quote, My Taiichi good leaders, you've lost a man in broad daylight. How can you expect to find him at night? Let's look in the same places once more, then go back to our tents. Tomorrow we'll gather again. We'll find him. How far can he go with a kang on his neck? End quote. A third search then took place, but also failed to locate the fugitive. This time the hunt was postponed until the morning, and Sorkan Shira went to inform Temujin that he was in the clear and could leave the river. But there was some truth in what Sorkan Shira had said about travelling with a kang around your neck, and Temujin realised that his escape would be incredibly difficult. So instead of running away from the Taiichigud camp, he went into it and sought out Sorkan Shira's tent. The family had been one of the few that had treated Temujin with kindness during his imprisonment, so he felt like it was the only place he could get the kang removed. But to say that Sorkan Shira was unhappy about Temujin's appearance in his tent was a little bit of an understatement. He probably feared any repercussions falling on his family. And in fact, Sorkan Shira had specifically told Temujin not to mention his name if or more likely when he was recaptured. So the fact that Temujin was on his doorstep was the complete opposite of what he wanted. Fortunately for Temujin, Sorkan Shira's children refused to turn him back into the night, and persuaded their father to hide him. Temujin was put into a cart full of wool, and one of Sorkan Shira's daughters was instructed to look after him. The Kang was removed from Temujin's neck and burnt. The search for Temujin continued for three days, but having found no sign of him outside the camp, it turned to look inside. Each tent was inspected for any trace of the prisoner, and Sorkan Shira's tent was no different, but the thorough search revealed nothing of Temujin's presence there. And when the wall cart was approached, Sorkan Shira, probably sweating as much as Temujin was under the wool, spoke up questioning how anyone could survive under all that heat. Fortunately, the search party agreed, and moved on to the next tent. Once the coast was clear, Sorkan Shira really, really desperate to get rid of Temujin at this point, made preparations for his departure. He gave Temujin the necessary supplies to get back to his family, including a horse, some food, cumis, and a bow with two arrows. And he said, quote, You almost got us all killed, blown away like the ashes. Now get out of here! Go find your mother and brothers! End quote. 
Temujin then ghosted away from the Taichi Good Camp. Once he was reunited with the rest of the family, they decided to move away from the Onan River and the hunting grounds of the Taichi Good. They moved to the Blue Lake in the Sengur River Valley, in sight of Mount Burkan Kuldun. Another anecdote told by the secret history is how Temujin acquired his first follower. At some point after the family had moved from the Onan, thieves stole eight of the nine horses that they owned. Belgatai was using the ninth horse, and once he returned, a discussion was held to decide who would retrieve the stolen horses. Quote, I'll go after them, Belgatai said. Kassar said, no, you can't do it, I'll go. No, you won't, I'll go, Temujin said. He saddled the mare and followed the tracks that the geldings had left in the grass. End quote. Actions spoke louder than words, and off Temujin went to get the horses back. Travelling across the steppe for four days, he came across a large herd being tended by a young man. He stopped and asked whether the man had seen his horses come past, to which he replied in the affirmative, and showed Temujin their tracks. He then got two fresh horses, giving one to Temujin and mounting the other one himself. Quote, You look like you're in trouble, he said the kind of trouble that can happen to any of us. I'll go with you and be your companion. My name is Bogotu. End quote. The young men rode until they came across a camp where they spotted Temujin's horses. Sneaking up, they managed to drive off the eight, but not before the horse thieves noticed them. The ensuing chase would last for the rest of the day, and as the thieves closed in on the pair, Bogotu offered to hold them off and allow Temujin to escape, but this offer was refused. Temujin stated that he couldn't allow someone to get hurt on his behalf. As night drew in though, Bogotu and Temujin were able to escape, and they drove the horses back to Bogotu's camp. As a reward, Temujin offered some of the returned horses to Bogotu, who refused them on the grounds that the success of the enterprise was reward enough, and also his father was rich and would provide anything he required. This father, who had been abandoned without notice and had heard nothing from his son in almost a week, had feared the worst. The reappearance of the duo brought tears of happiness and an announcement that because the two men had undertaken such an adventure together, they were now companions and should never again abandon each other. And that's how Temujin acquired his first follower. Much like the confrontation with Begta, this moment seems like another turning point in Temujin's life. The decision to take on the responsibility of returning the horses firmly established Temujin as the undisputed leader of the family. He was also beginning to show traits that he was to become famed for, fairness, loyalty, and incisiveness. Bogorchu was the first of Temujin's retainers, but many more would soon join him. He was no longer the petulant child fighting over stolen meat. The secret history only really provides a snapshot of Temujin's youth, flashbacks if you like. The anecdotes it tells aren't necessarily the most flattering as we've seen, but it perhaps offers some grounding to future generations, and reminds us that Chinggis Khan wasn't born with the expectation of ruling a vast empire. He will literally emerge from nothing. Sure, the secret history regularly points out signs that show Temujin will become Chinggis Khan, but in reality, it wasn't a foregone conclusion. 
These stories chosen by the author seem to show Alan Lefair's message of unity in different ways. The abandonment by the Taichigud draws the family close together, and they survive. The death of Begta sees Hogolun literally yelling the teaching of Alan Lefair at Temujin, trying to get it to stick in his moody teenage mind. Temujin's captured by the Taichigun, subsequent salvation by Sorkan Shira's family, illustrates what can be achieved if everyone is working together. And the episode with the stolen horses shows the power of a good plan, willing supporters, and perhaps, most importantly, that family isn't always blood-related. As Temujin rode back to the family group, greater ambitions were forming in his mind. He was a leader. He had a follower. And he wanted more. He wanted his people back. But to achieve this, he would need some help. So next time on the Mongol Empire podcast, we join Temujin as he finds a patron and starts down the road to immortality. So that's it for this episode. Check out the Mongol Empire podcast website at mongolempirepodcast.com where all of the sources used in this miniseries can be found as well as other resources that I'm slowly developing such as family trees and the sources from other episodes that have already been published. In the meantime, if you want to get in contact with me for any reason whatsoever to correct whatever errors I may have made or even tell me how to pronounce these names, then you can email me at Cory, that's C-O-R-E-Y, at mongolempirepodcast.com, or I'm vaguely on Twitter, at mongolempirepod, and I will try to get back to you promptly. So, until next month, fingers crossed, thanks for listening.